All right. With that being said, how many of you like movies? Raise your hand. How many of you like books? Raise your hand, like series of books. All right, so if you have a favorite book or a favorite series of books or a favorite movie you'd like to share what that is, raise your hand. That's awesome. Uh, Favorite movie, Princess Bride. The Princess Bride. Woo! That's awesome. That's a fantastic movie. Superman. Superman. Now, you're talking like, now I know what he means. He means the original Superman. Christopher Reeves, not, not any of the newer stuff. Just saying. I can tell you exactly what he means by that. Back there? Luther. 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 Oh, well, nice. All right. What else? Old Yeller. Old Yeller. Okay. All right. Anybody else? Any book series? A lot of these are, are movies, and some of them are movies and books. The Lego movies. The Lego, the Lego movies. movies. All right. That's a good one to build off of. Okay. Percy Jackson. Okay. You got the you got the whole the books. Are you talking books? The book series. Okay. So we're talking the book series. All right. In the back, back there, there's a few. Anne of Green Gables. My wife approves. Narnia series, all right. Are we talking the books or are we talking the movies? Yeah, that's, you're my people. You're my people right there. The Bible. The Bible, yeah. We We have two people. Hopefully everybody says the Bible, and that's what we'll be getting into in just a moment. The Prince of Egypt. The Prince of Egypt, okay. Well, you know, the whole thing, thank you so much, David. The whole reason I mentioned movies and books, and, and of course, we talk about these movies. How many of you, like, when we talk about The Princess Bride, how many of us can quote The Princess Bride? Raise your hand. Okay? If you've, re- if you've read or watched Old Yeller, how many, can you quote? Yes, you can. Because these are movies and books we go back to again and again and again and again. They're our favorites for a reason, right? That the stories in them not only speak to us, but have us going back to them again and again. My wife loves Lord of the Rings. My wife goes to sleep when she's, you know, if she's restless, put on Lord of the Rings, she can go to sleep. I know, it seems like, that doesn't seem like a movie you would go to sleep to. But there is nothing more comforting to my wife than having heads of orcs chopped off. You know, so it's like, just, that just feels so good, I can go to sleep now. Evil is being destroyed. Okay, so, there is something about books and movies that have us revisit them again and again and again, right? Good stories have us do that. One of our favorite movies that we watch as a family, National Treasure, we like National Treasure, what we liked about it, and one of the things you go back to over and over again, is just a well-crafted story, right? So I go back, and it's quotable, and, and the story makes sense. And then there's all these, like, maybe it's a mystery, and all of those little clues were all throughout, and you missed them, but you want to go back and see all those clues, and, oh, they just led so naturally to this conclusion, and I never saw it, right? That is kind of what we're going to be talking about today when we're talking about the Gospel of John. So, in the books of the Bible, there's 66 books in the Bible, there are a number of the books that would have what you would call a purpose or a thesis statement. There's a whole group of books called the prophets, who's, uh, who each one of them are given oracles, and sometimes multiple oracles, that tell you exactly what they're about. 
The prophets are kind of their own category in that regard. We go beyond just the prophetic books. There are 11 other books that have, if you will, a thesis statement. And these thesis statements are either found at the very beginning of the book, in that first chapter, or toward the end of the book. It's one or the other. It's, it's not usually in the middle that you see that. And so we're going to take a look at the books of the Bible that have definite thesis statements because these thesis statements help us to interpret the rest of the book. This, it stands that this is the point that this book is trying to make. This is why this is written. So we have to read everything in that regard. So let's take a look real quick. In the Old Testament, there are a couple of them. We can look at the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, in the first seven verses of chapter 1, it says this. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. For attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young, let the wise listen and add to their learning, let the discerning get guidance, for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings of riddles of the wise, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and discipline. See, these seven verses set the stage for everything else that you read in the book of Proverbs. This is the stated purpose. It's for the simple, it's for the wise, it's for discernment, it's to judge right and wrong, it's to do all of those things, and it has its origin in the fear of the Lord as its beginning. So when we read the Proverbs, those seven verses are instrumental in any of the Proverbs that we read, right? So I'm not going to read a proverb that's going to contradict the word of God because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? So if the fear of the Lord's beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord's beginning of knowledge, guess what? Then nothing I read from Proverbs is going to contradict what God has said. So you can't read the Proverbs in that way. If we go to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is another book of the Bible. As a matter of fact, this is one that that our youth group did at the end of the last school year. We spent 16 weeks going through everything in Ecclesiastes. And we started at the end because the conclusion writes the thesis of it, right? And the conclusion of it, the last two verses of Ecclesiastes, says this. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. See, when we get to the end of Ecclesiastes, we see that this is a journey that's supposed to end here. So as we read during this journey, we have to read with this in mind. So every place that you look, ironically, because Ecclesiastes is really contrasting two worldviews. One is an atheistic worldview without God, and one is a theistic worldview that God is involved in this world. And so we hear so many times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes the phrase, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, vanity of vanities. Which worldview do you think he's talking about when he says that? 
is the atheistic one. And we see that contrast all throughout the book. But we can get confused if we don't understand that the purpose of this is to say, guess what? Fear God and obey his commands because that's where ultimate purpose is found. And if we read Ecclesiastes outside of that framework, number one, we're not reading it according to its thesis. And number two, it's going to seem like a very confusing book. In the New Testament, we have the same thing. So let's take a look at some of these in the New Testament that have these explicit thesis statements that are supposed to guide our understanding of what's behind it. In Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Luke gives his definition, his thesis of why he's writing all this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. What is he saying? I'm giving you a historical account. So you believe the things that are written here. I'm going to share with you the historical account that can help you be certain of those things which you believe. That's why he wrote Luke. As a matter of fact, he repeats that when we go to the book of Acts because Acts is the second volume. And as Pastor Mark would say, it's Luke-Acts, which... In, in truth, that's the way he kind of wrote it, right? He wrote it as Luke is the first volume and Acts is the second volume. And he repeats that purpose or unites those two purposes together in the first couple of verses in Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he has chosen. He says this is a continuation of that account. So you go back to Luke to find out what is this. This is written so that you can have confidence in the things in which you've believed. I've written an orderly account of the things of Jesus' life and the things Jesus continued to do through the apostles afterwards. We go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy has a purpose as well. And it's written in the first chapter, but toward the end of the first chapter. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 18 and 19, it says this, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you might fight the good fight, holding on to the faith and a good conscience. And some have rejected these and, have shipped, and, and so have shipwrecked their faith. So why is Paul writing this to Timothy? Paul is writing these instructions so he might fight the good fight of faith and he might remain faithful to Jesus Christ because others who have not have shipwrecked their faith. So when we read 1 Timothy, we have to read. This is written to a young man that he's been mentoring in Christ that we read about. And he says, this is further instruction for you to continue to fight the good fight. Guess what? That, that would pertain to us as well, right? If you were writing to us, this is how you continue to stay faithful to Jesus. And we should read 1 Timothy with that in mind, because that's the thesis. That's the reason why Paul wrote it. 
Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Well, if I can get there, let's see. The reason I left you, this is to Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what, what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So why am I writing this? I left you in Crete that you might put in order what was left unfinished. You might appoint elders. And what's the rest of this letter about? Leadership. Appointing leaders and how the church should be run while he's there. Because this is his role while he's there. Everything that follows that thesis is something that we're reading. And we have to keep that in mind. This is the purpose for which it was written. Hebrews. You might not think of Hebrews as, as being one that has a thesis statement, but it actually does. It's the first four verses of the book of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The rest of the book of Hebrews is based on those four verses, showing the exalting, uh, the exalting superiority of Jesus over every principality and power, over everything in the past. High priest, the tabernacle, all of these things were to point to be, to be the one who was to come, who is Jesus Christ. And so everything comes back to these first four verses in Hebrews. That Jesus is above all, and that's all you hear about all throughout Hebrews. That's the theme that you can go. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Jesus is greater than the tabernacle. Jesus is greater than all sacrifices. You know why? Because he sacrificed himself. All of those things are included in these first four verses. And it ends, ironically, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? Pretty cool. Now we get to the books that we have just completed recently. We go to 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. So this is, this is the thesis toward the end of this epistle. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you, and I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So what's the purpose of it? To stimulate you and I to wholesome thinking, right? And how are we going to do that? By going back to the word of God in the Old Testament and the prophets and in the New Testament writings of the apostles makes it very clear this is how we do that and so we have to read first and second peter with the understanding that this is the thesis behind it then last week john did a great job on john didn't he i just like saying john we're gonna be saying that a lot aren't we so but last week John did a fantastic job on going through the, the book of 1 John because 1 John had a specific purpose. 
And that specific purpose is found toward the end. Because John is very explicit on what that purpose is. It's found in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. Just to remind you, he said this last week. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So everything you read in 1 John is so that you may know that you have eternal life. Everything. We have, to, we have to be consistent with that theme throughout that epistle. And the same John who wrote that wrote the gospel of John that we are about to embark on. But it's important to note, whenever you guys think about, you know, talking to somebody about, what if, if I don't know anything about Jesus, where do I need to begin? Most people say, need to start with the gospel of John, Right? Have you ever wondered why that is? Why, why, do, why do we say the gospel? I mean, does that make it more better than, you know, I meant to say more better, more better than Matthew or Mark or Luke? I mean, those are gospels as well. They're known as synoptic gospels. They cover a lot of the same stories. But the gospel of John is oftentimes where we start at. We, we're like, John is where we start. Well, why do we start at John? You guys ever really thought about that? Because John has a thesis for the reason for which he is written. And it's found at the end of the Gospel of John. So let's take a look at it together. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, this is the thesis for all of John, from the first verse to the last verse. And notice some of the things that he says in, in the process of talking about this. These things are written. And he says that Jesus did many other things that are not recorded in this book. That's, that's, a, that's kind of a sly reference to the other three Gospels that were already out because John was written after those were written. So we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke that were already well circulated by the time John writes his Gospel down. And were well known. This is why we see not as much repeat from John as we do with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Some of his stuff helps fill in the gaps. That Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of leave out. When you bring those testimonies together, they make a lot more sense. After you bring John's uh, identity into that, saying, well, there's this little piece that was missing here. Like, for example, perfect example. If we look in Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus is being crucified or being uh, held up for trial, one of the accusations that they throw out against Jesus is that he said that he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. You can read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and there's no reference to him saying that anytime sooner. But if you read John chapter 2, which we will be reading very soon, we see that Jesus proclaims exactly that in the temple after he's driven out all the money changers. See, John remembers it. And that little detail is important 
but we wouldn't know about it. And it seems disjointed from Matthew's gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't have an account that says he ever said anything like that. But John remembers exactly when and where and he lets us in on it and why that's important. See, these are, these are amazing things to note. Now, here's something that I had heard earlier this week as I was listening to an amazing podcast by a biblical scholar. When we talk about there are many other things that Jesus did, many other miraculous things that Jesus did, do you realize that if we took all four accounts of Jesus' earthly life from Matthew to John, we only have recorded about 46 days of Jesus' life. Have you ever really thought about that? I mean, we talk about that this, this time period of his ministry lasts for three and a half years. That's where a majority is written on. Although there are instances of his birth and instances of his young childhood that are also mentioned. So 33 and a half years, more or less, that we're looking at Jesus on this earth before his crucifixion. And we only have 46 days, not even full days, just partial accounts of things that happened of significance on those days. How many of you have ever been to a theme park like Disney World or something like that? Most of us here, okay. Do we tell everybody everything that happened while we were there? I slept for eight hours. Actually, I slept for seven hours. Actually, really, I slept for five hours and then... In the middle of the day, we took a two-hour nap. And, and did we talk about that? I stood in line to get a drink for 15 minutes. How many, how many of us, are we sharing those details? No, we hit, we hit all the highlights, right? Here's what we did. This was amazing. This was awesome. This stood out to me. You know, this was awesome. Or this was terrible. We went on this ride, and I threw up seven times afterwards. I am not eating three corn dogs before riding Space Mountain again, right? We, we talk about those highlights, right? And so it is with Jesus' life as well. We have the highlights of that life. And yet we're told we're not told everything. Because think about it. When you're there for a week, if you're there at Disney World for three days or four days, there might have been many amazing things. But you only hit the, you know, this upper echelon, this top 25% I'm going to tell everybody about because this was awesome. It's not that the 50% below it was any worse. It's just that... I didn't think about talking about that then. Right? I want to talk. I had an awesome time. I want to accentuate this awesomeness. Or I had a terrible time and I want to accentuate this badness, right? <laughs> I will never be doing that again. Right? And if you've been to a restaurant, had the worst ever time there, and you're like, not going again. <laughs> Sorry. That's the way they're going to treat people? Not doing it. Right? We, we, don't tell everything about the account, but we definitely tell about the account so we get our point across. This is what John is talking about when he's talking about these concluding remarks here, here at the end of the Gospel of John. These things are written. Are they exhaustive? No. As a matter of fact, he says even in the next chapter over how unexhaustive it is. When we look at, at the very end of John, John chapter 21 and verse 25, it says this. Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would, ha would have room for the books that would be written. 
Here we are 2,000 years later. I think that that's pretty much come true, right? Still writing books about this Jesus, right? And what he's done and how he continues to move. And just like Luke mentioned, all the things that Jesus began to do, which is ironic because Jesus had already gone up into heaven when he starts the account in Acts. Jesus is still moving and working. That's why we talked about testimony time here just a little while ago because we believe he's living and active. We believe that he shows himself to be that way. And so we're still testifying to the goodness of Jesus Christ to this very day. Praise God, right? That's awesome. So writing books about it. But we only have a snapshot. And the snapshot is so important for you and I to understand. This thesis statement is so important for you and I to understand. Because we have to read the gospel of John in the light of this thesis statement. So what is the thesis? That these are written. What are these things? They're the miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. So we have to understand that first thing, first thing here, is that the miraculous signs that are in the gospel of John are important. They're paramount to his point. They were done in front of the disciples and they have a threefold purpose. But he lets you know, these things, these miraculous signs, the ones that we've chosen, he did many other miraculous signs, but we've chosen these in this gospel to highlight, to do three things. Number one is this. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The promised Messiah of the Jewish people. That they had been looking forward to. When we read the Gospel of John. You're going to hear this conversation come up a lot. He's the Christ. He's the promised one. All of the promises in the Old Testament of the anointed one. The Messiah. The one who was to come. To be the ruler of God's people. This is Jesus. He's going to fulfill that. And they had a lot of misconceptions concerning the Christ. They thought he was going to be a military leader when he came. They thought he was going to establish an earthly kingdom and live forever on this kingdom here on earth. These are some of the claims that we're going to see as we walk through the Gospel of John. It's like they kind of get close with what they think they know concerning what the Messiah says, and yet they miss it all together. And it's interesting to me that John says that what he's pointing to is not necessarily fulfilled scripture, although we will see that he quotes scripture in fulfillment of Jesus being the Christ. He says it's the miraculous signs that point to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Isn't that interesting? Because I think that if we go to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's exactly the opposite. He's using scripture as proving that Jesus is the Christ that they were looking for. John is saying, I'm not really worried about the scripture. I'm not ignoring the scripture that's already been written down. You know why? Because those things that Matthew wrote were wrote to show that Jesus is the Christ. He's not denying that. He's not, he's not denying that at all. He's saying, those things have already been written. I'm adding to this that these miraculous things that we witness shows that he's the Christ. And we see Jesus pointing to that again and again in his ministry. The second thing is, 
That these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now that's an interesting distinction because not everybody who believed that Messiah was coming believed that the Messiah was going to be the Son of God. That he was going to be a mighty earthly kingdom. He might even live forever as an earthly king, but he didn't necessarily share the nature of God. But that the miracles that Jesus does actually provides the proof that not only is he the Messiah, he shares the same nature as God, that he himself is the Son of God. And we will see that claim tested again and again throughout the Gospel of John. And again, what does John do? He points to the miracles as being the proof that Jesus not only is the Christ, but that he's the Son of God. And the third thing is this. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That these miracles are not miracles unto themselves as a glorified marker of who Jesus is as the Christ and the Son of God. But that they're markers that by believing in him and what he is going to do for you and for me, that we may have life in his name. That it's through Jesus that you and I have eternal life, not anybody else. Not anybody else. And what proves this? The miracles that were witnessed by the disciples. These are written that we have witnessed, even though there's more than this. That you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, this is why we take people through the Gospel of John. If they've never read anything about the Word of God before, why? Because the the stated purpose of the gospel of John is to bring people to belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That may be implicit in Matthew and Mark, but it's not explicitly stated. Luke is going about it as somebody who has already believed. So this is not somebody who doesn't believe. This is somebody who does believe. And Luke is providing, if you will, a historic apologetic. Remember when we talked about 1 Peter, that apologetics is for who? The believer, right? It's for the believer first. So what is Luke doing? He's writing an apologetic of the historicity of Jesus Christ so that people can be confident in what they have already believed. John's purpose is different. His is for the person who doesn't believe. That they may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Oh, I'm so excited. That's why we do what we do. We break this down. This is the thesis of it. So when we're reading from John chapter 1 and verse 1 all the way to the end of John chapter 21 and 25 as we're on this journey finishing this last book, the whole purpose is that you may believe and have life in the name of Jesus Christ. Is that not the whole reason we're here? Amen. I'm excited. How about you? My prayer for you is as we start this this week, keep that thesis in mind. Every verse is written for that purpose. Every miracle is recorded to reveal those three things. 
Everything is supposed to point us back to Jesus again and again and again. And you know what? If you know somebody who needs to know Jesus, man, this is a great time to bring them to church, don't you think? Stand with me. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you use so many different people with so many different purposes carried by your Holy Spirit to write exactly what you wanted to write. And in the case of the Gospel of John, not only are we getting an account of the life of Jesus Christ, we know the purpose behind it, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we may have life in his name. Oh God, this is a great journey. Let us take others with us. This is where we can begin with anybody who doesn't know Jesus. Let's start with this because the miracles show these three things. That Jesus is a Christ. That he's the son of God. And that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. Thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.